Roll for initiative. Hi, this is Jason, and welcome to a special insert edition of Roll for Initiative. For this special insert, we're going back to Icon 30, which happened last week uh, out here in New York, out at Stony Brook University in Long Island. I wanted to say a special thanks to James Carpio for uh, inviting Roll for Initiative out, for um, hosting all the different gamer guests, doing an amazing job. It was my first time at Icon 30, or it was my first time at Icon. Uh, it was Icon number 30. Um, I had a blast. Can't wait to go back next year. I especially had a good time playing in the celebrity D&D uh, game. My inclusion really stretched the definition of celebrity to its outer limits. So um, I uh, thank you, James, for including me among actual celebrities who were there. Uh, uh, Chris Adams, George Strayton. Michael O'Neill, Cam Banks, Aaron Rosenberg. Uh, Michael, thank you for DMing. It was great. And of course, uh, last but not least, the man who actually wrote uh, the rules we were playing with, Frank Mentzer. So we had a great time playing Redbox, uh, OD&D. Had a blast. And uh, for this special insert, we have for you a talk that Frank gave, Frank Menser gave, at ICON, and it's called Remembering Gary Gygax. It didn't work real well. We weren't in a real laughing, dice-rolling mood, but we played a little bit for Gary. And the family came together and said, this is cool. We ought to do this to remember Gary each year. So they started, uh, they issued T-shirts, really, for that first weekend, which is a little macabre. This was the weekend that Gary died. And that was GaryCon Zero, and now we're up to GaryCon 1, 2, and 3 after this, where the uh, Gygax family and people get together, and their motto is that Gary was a guy who loved playing games. He was a guy who wanted to be remembered for playing games, not for writing games, not for diatribes in Dragon Magazine, not for obstinate, weird choices of what to put in his games, like his polearm obsession or things like that, <laughs> but a guy who enjoyed playing games, and I mean playing war games and board games, not role-playing so much. Role-playing came along later. It was his late-in-life thing, you know, he managed to dream up uh, that, those little brown books back when. Um, Gary pissed off a lot of people during his time, especially with his uh, very stubborn uh, and opinionated pieces in Dragon Magazine and convention appearances and everything else. He wasn't a god. Uh, he wasn't anywhere near a god. He was a religious man. He was a, uh, the father of a large family, mostly girls, to his chagrin. Um, <laughs> But he managed to, to, to switch that around in time. It started as all girls. Well, one boy and then a bunch of girls, and then he started tacking boys on there towards the end. So it didn't seem to be a genetic deficiency or anything. <laughs> um, when the servicemen came back from World War II, go all the way back now, backspace here, to the late 40s when Gary was growing up, 40s, 50s, a lot of Americans wanted to know what the battles were like, what the war was like. And if you've been a serviceman and seen combat, you don't want to talk about it. And you know you don't want to talk about it, and neither did they. And to 
compound that, the U.S. government was censoring all the news about the war while it was going on for very good security purposes. You know, you don't want to tell the enemy that you have huge forces moving in this part of the world. Nowadays, the satellites pick it all up. Back then, they didn't. So gaming clubs started up to play reenactments of World War II battles. They did this starting with a long, well-established hobby of buying ingots of this very nasty lead-based metal, melting them down, buying in the back of Popular Science or some other weird magazine these molds, melting down the, the metal, pouring your own figures, getting to work, chipping all the flash offs, smoothing the bases, maybe getting into the full paint jobs, etc. And you do this times 10,000 and line up all these figures and play out mass battles with your friends. That's what Gary was into in the 60s. Uh, thanks in part to a guy named Charles Roberts right down the road in Baltimore, who came up with the first board games of war battle reenactments with a new company started called Avalon Hill. Gary played some of those and his managers games and uh, helped start a game club and tried to start an international society called the International Federation of War Gamers, although they had one club in Britain and the rest were all in the US, so it wasn't really international. But that's what it said on the card, AFW, I still have my old membership card, had heard of the guy, but you know, had never met him. Um, and there, so these game clubs back in the 60s and the early 70s playing Manchers games, Avalon Hill board games, playing war games, essentially battle reenactments in all cases. Although it was starting to expand into hypotheticals like science fiction, etc., but that really golden era had to wait until the mid-70s with SPI's science fiction titles, etc. So I'm getting ahead of myself on the story. You have the situation in the country with game clubs all over the place. Now, there weren't that many game rules published for these managers' games. If you bought an Avalon Hill board game, fine, it's all there, but if you're really a gamer, you're gonna tinker with the rules, right? So you buy an Avalon Hill game and you play it once or twice, well, what if, you know, so Gary started tinkering with a game called uh, Alexander the Great that um, Avalon Hill decided to publish. Uh, he came up, Gary came up with his own board game. Uh, a lot of people aren't aware of this, that he's a board game designer before the D&D stuff. Um, some of Gary's works in that line were published by a little outfit down in Evansville, Indiana, um, who later, called Guiden Games, by the way, who later packed up and moved back to Maine because it was just really a one-man operation and he moved back home for the family. And that left Gary without a publisher, so he talked to friends in Lake Geneva and said, well, we got these war game rules that we call chain mail. And there's a section in the back for what if you, it, it's based on medieval, Arthurian, or, or British, you know, historical managers. It's, again, we're talking the same stuff Gary's been playing for years. And his, uh, he worked with a couple other people and got drew ideas from members of his club. And their specialty, what they were really into was medieval, like I say, Arthurian British war game simulations. And they said, well, what about Merlin? And what about the beast that they had to chase? And what about the Holy Grail, these blatantly magical or at least unreal things that are in the Arthurian legends through Mallory, et cetera. And so they came out with supplemental material for how to work this into this masked medieval battle thing called chainmail. And this 
much talked about now fantasy supplement to chain mail is what then evolved into d and d thanks to the work of a guy at another game club who had regular things going back and forth between gary's lake geneva club called the castle and crusade society and this grew up in uh, minnesota i'm sorry i'm backwards for you <laughs> minnesota uh, up there in the twin cities and then down here in indiana evansville as i said there were gamers down there the one guy who had the publishing house was just a member of the club when he left the club was still there now, what's between Minnesota, Twin Cities, and Evansville, Indiana, and then Chicago down the line here? Well, Lake Geneva, Gary's crew. So, well, why don't we get together at Gary's? You guys drive down from Minnesota, we'll drive up from Indiana. Because in this war game campaign that we've had going, and played by mail, sending diplomatic orders of nations in their medieval city-states and all sorts of things, occasionally diplomacy failed and you had to have a battle and fight it out and decide who was going to dictate the terms and change the face of that land at that point. So they would get together and play these out on big sand tables, use sand to imitate terrain, etc. But uh, uh, sort of things, HO gauge uh, trees and other you know scenery from your layouts. And, and just play it in your miniature figures, which you've lugged all the way from Indiana or down from Minnesota. And in the course of these interactions, you get together for a weekend, play out these battles and determine that for your war game campaign, but then also toss around game ideas and sit down and play the new Avalon Hill game. You know, they're all-around gamers. They try just about anything. And it was in these interactions that this guy named Dave Arneson from the Minnesota crew said, boy, this chainmail fantasy end is, is really neat. Uh, what do the leaders of the armies do on their day off, basically. And so he went back home and came up with it. Well, okay, you have these powerful individuals running around as individuals. Now in the mass war game thing, one figure could represent 100, 5,000 troops, you know, whatever. In Dave's variant, one figure represented one person, okay, these war leaders. And this ended up, the synergy between the two led to what was Dungeons and Dragons. Gary felt that since he found some money for some local people, published the first chain mails through Guiding Games in Southern Indiana, then had to publish it himself, had to have a bigger company, more capitalization, more commitments, need more products, you see more things, still war game products are appearing in the D&D books and all these supplements of that era. D&D starts to boom through the 70s. We're starting to talk millions of dollars. And Dave says, well, what about my contributions? And Gary says, well, I spent my life at this. I mean, thank you for your help, Dave, but that's that. And so it came to the legal fight, and the judge ended up deciding that without the spark of life that Gary provided, or that Dave provided to things, Gary would have produced a wonderfully detailed, fantastic war game. And it didn't become role-playing until Dave stepped in. And that's where a lot of the anguish in Gary's life came from, losing that lawsuit. I happen to believe the judges made the right decision. I knew both of the guys. Um, I've been a Gygaxian all my life, and I, was, I would have leaned towards Gary for all the work that he put in building the company. But the judge said D&D would have just been another war game, like an Avalon Hill game or something like that, were it not for this role-playing element. And even though Dave didn't spend his life at it, didn't write much of that down, it was just ideas that then Gary took and published, nevertheless how that balanced out. So if you ever wanted to know that story, 
and some of the inside dope on a fairly unbi unbiased uh, point of view. Uh, that's, that's how it all happened. Now later, Gary lost control of TSR, got forced out by a gal that he had hired to be the administration assistant. She knew where the bodies were buried after she worked there for a year or two, made an inside deal with some other shareholders, ended up with majority control, and then that was that for through the uh, rest of the 80s and into the 90s. As I say, though, Gary was, um, he had his ups and downs building a multi-million dollar, we're talking 10, 20, 30, 40 million a year. Um, building a company that size takes a lot out of you. And also, as Peter Atkinson, head of, former head of Wizards of the Coast, can tell you, it takes a lot of equity, if any of you are business people. You start out owning the whole company. This is my company. Isn't this great? And you need more money to expand. So, all right, you can buy in, and I'll sell a little bit of it to you, and then to you. And the next thing you know, five, ten years have gone by, and you've sold 80 90% of the company to get enough money in to make it all happen. And this really tore Gary, that he lost control of this creation of his that he felt was his. And he wrote some things in the heat of the moment and got a bad rep for some of it. A lot of Gary's reputation is this quarrelsome, irritable, egocentric, you know, I did it all and nobody else deserves any credit and you're all doing it wrong because you're not doing it my way, that sort of point of view. He wasn't really that way in, in, in person. Um, it was part of his writing style and part of his uh, flaws, frankly. So remembering Gary is bittersweet and is a mixed bag. Um, he was an ordinary guy. He was a war gamer who became a role player. He was originally a failed shoemaker, uh, insurance salesman, a couple other things that just didn't work out for him. But then this happened to hit and his whole life changed. And yeah, we'd all like to have the problem. Gee, it starts raining money, you know, by the millions. But nevertheless, you say that, we all say that now. Yeah, please, God, hit me with it. Go ahead, I'll deal with it. But it's gonna rip your life up if something like uh, that happens. Um, and you can just imagine what that did to a big family, a religious man, a good man, who, for example, often would include co-author credits to people who didn't deserve it because they needed the money. This happened in at least half a dozen products, and I'm not going to spill any beans on that here because there's legal issues. But uh, he was that kind of guy. Is there anything you wanted to know about Gary? Or my relations with him, or whatever, but I'd rather keep the focus on Gary. Anybody? Just going to make me sit here and blab at you the whole time. That's fine. I can blab. How did Gary deal with the whole feeling of losing a product that he put so much time into losing? Well, first he, he lost it to a woman who I refer to as the Pog, the person who ousted Gygax. Uh, because I do not feel that her name deserves memory in this hobby for what happened to TSR, D&D, the product lines, etc., uh, under her control. From the business point of view, I think she made the right business decisions and funneled all the TSR money into her separate estate. Legally, entirely legally, she was too smart to screw that up. But that's essentially what I think happened. How he felt losing that to her? Furious. Uh, and he went out and started a new company right away, New Infinities, and invited me and Kim Mohan to go join him and start that up in 86. And we were underfunded, and Gary underestimated his value as a target of opportunity to the POG. The only person who could have brought down TSR and D&D &D from their high horse, I think, 
would have been Gary and his creations. He still had enough personal fans of his works. So wherever he popped up, she had to keep whacking him like whack-a-mole until he was down and out of money and stayed down and out. And he didn't realize that fully and how much money was involved. So he got whacked down first with New Infinities, then he published Dangerous Journeys over with GDW, Game Designers Workshop, and they got sued and his product got stopped there. He tried one other and there was a lawsuit threatened and at that point he was out of money and pretty much gave up. And he did not die rich. He certainly was uh, living pretty much on what his wife Gail was bringing in from um, uh, antique sales and uh, a little bit of real estate sales in the last five, ten years. So all that money went away. Um, that wasn't his focus. His focus was on the people and taking care of the people that he wanted to help, taking care of the people who earned it, and that sort of thing. And he became more religious later in life and included scriptural quotes in his emails and things like that. Um, perhaps as his health was deteriorating, he felt the pressure uh, building. Um, I don't think it was a purely crass, well, play the odds. Maybe there is somebody up there, so better pretend like we believe sort of thing. Which I know some gamers who would try <laughs> on, their, on their deathbed. But uh, no, I think with Gary, it was there with him all the time. It just never got emphasized during the early TSR days, but came out later. Especially as his kids grew. You know, your kids grow, you get a different perspective on life and all that. And uh, attitudes change. Yeah. So how did Gary feel as the gaming industry and just gamers themselves changed as computers started coming into it, as collectible card games came in, and as things really shifted? Gary tried to embrace computer gaming very early on, and he kept getting outvoted by other management. He wasn't the sole person running TSRs. That gets complicated. We'll skip that. Did he have thing. like a vision for what he thought computers, how they should be involved? Not really. None of us really did then. Uh, you look at the great science fiction of the uh, 50s and 60s and see their look at computers. And they posit huge spaceships <laughs> that half of it's the computer. You know, miniaturization component just got completely uh, eluded almost everybody from Heinlein and Asimov all the way down. Oh, yeah, the computer that lived on the moon and yeah, uh, yeah, that's Harsh sort of Mistress. So, so forecasting what computers would do to gaming and to us, uh, no, that wasn't in the cards. Uh, if, if we could have been billionaires if we could have <laughs> you know, realized what was going to happen uh, long before the Internet and all the back in the old ARPANET days. Speaking of ARPANET, though, if any of you are familiar with Internet history, that g first came up along with various other, I don't remember all the names, so I won't mention any, but uh, early code-based programs for home computers and things, and on the ARPANET and early internet, many of those were fantasy-based, and many people feel that was because of the popularity of Dungeons & Dragons, which came about, like I say, out of wargaming, but to add to that, the Tolkien influence that got so big in the... Uh, 60s especially, on college campuses and elsewhere, and mass market and all that. Um, I think Gary regretted that TSR never went that way. Back as early as 81, we had two or three computer games for the Apple II and Atari. I do remember those. Uh, yeah. No, just Atari. Apple II was in the future at that yeah. point. Um, and we didn't really know what to do with them, so they just kind of got dropped. Other management, like I said, voted them down. 
if we had jumped on them like Gary wanted back then, he wrote the script for a computer game, uh, D and D type thing, uh, a test script, you know, to see how to, if it would work out. So I know that he was aware of the potential, and always very exasperated that it never got taken seriously by TSR management. Yeah. Do you think he um, quite, I mean, understood how, um, even though you know, again, he lost pretty much a lot of his you know, the financials and stuff. Did he? Do you think he really completely understood how much uh, of an impact he had on the lives of the people um, around him later in his life? I mean, like the people. Luckily, that did come out, uh, especially through the later years. He would get invited to wonderful local conventions like, say, ICON. <laughs> and given he came here and was given a Lifetime Achievement Award. And in the course of that, he would meet people. He'd go to Gen Con and Origins and other uh, smaller cons uh, all over the country um, with, with hardly any retainer involved, although he was due something there, but plus, plus his costs. Me, I'm, I'm a cheap date. You just cover my costs and I'll come game with you. Anyway. <laughs> um, and I'm serious about that. Some people hear me say that and come up afterwards. We could really get you at a con, sure. Yeah. I'm 60. I, I'm not working a regular job. I haven't worked a regular job for years. Uh, <laughs> decades, maybe. Uh, and my time is my own. I love playing games. And I love talking to people. Gary, same thing. And people would come up to him and tell him, as they tell me these days, how much that meant to them as they were growing up that it expanded their minds and their horizons. It made them look beyond run around a track on a board type, you know, it, uh, simple family board games and things. Um, and since his whole purpose in life boiled down to he, that he wanted to be remembered as a guy who loved playing games, having those games, any games, have that big an impact on others was a big plus. And the fact that he helped create those games was just the best. Uh, there were other very heartwarming stories and individual cases of all oh, D&D saved my life. I was getting into drugs and this and that and then I hooked up with a clean D&D group and it got my head together and yeah we were playing weird stuff but my head was straight at least. You know, now adults at the time didn't follow <laughs> that. Wait a minute, you're playing weird stuff but your head's straight. Uh, give me that again. <laughs> but that, you, you hear what I'm saying mm -hmm. on things like that and that meant an awful lot to Gary. And one of the coolest things is, and, and I'm grateful that in part I helped create this, when I wrote the D&D line in the early 80s, or mid 80s, uh, the uh, Basic Expert Companion Masters and Immortals, the five brightly colored box sets, that was the line that TSR was finally happy enough to commit to translating into a dozen or more languages and selling worldwide which is why I lucked out into becoming the best-selling role-playing author of all time, except for one quirk that came by. Uh, I think it's the Pokemon role-playing game. But, uh, the, the one that everybody had the Pokemon figures and watched the cartoons, so they bought the game and then they put it on the shelf and then they never played it. Um, true. Um, if you're familiar with that one. But people come to me and say, oh, I discovered this when I was growing up and it meant so much to me and I made these friends and you had such an influence on my life. People from all over the world telling me this. And likewise, people from all over the world telling Gary that because they read past the compiled by Frank Menser into the game created by Dave Arneson and Gary Gygax part. And uh, people remembered that and all that he built. And of course, TSR for many years was still there as a monument 
good and then bad, or however you want to think of it, to what he created. And regardless of that corporate foulness or goodness, nevertheless, it did all get built by Garrick, and there's no question about that. He was proud of that. I can talk to you any of them. <laughs> <laughs> Hang on. Yes, sir. Uh, I think there are a lot of people who, you know, are interested in the history of the hobby and, you know, got, got involved in, say, you know, the late 80s and, you know, the late, late 70s, early 80s. I think um, the holy grail for a lot of people would be uh, Gary's uh, Castle Greyhawk notes. And I think we've kind of built this up uh, over the years because the tournament modules, I think we, I think the gamers have this, this idea that, they, you know, this, this, this huge compendium, Gary had everything planned out, and I think, mm -hmm. I, would you be uh, able to get some, uh, some insight into what Gary's actual notes, uh, you know? If you like, sure. Yeah. Uh, I played in Greyhawk a number of times. Mm -hmm. um, like I say, Gary and I went, Way back. Now, I was second wave. I didn't show up until 1980. So you have the 70s crew that was with them back in the hard times and the early growing years. And then I came on board back when things were booming. You know? So I missed the struggle part in the beginning, and I, I was riding the wave. Um, Castle Greyhawk was a series of minimal notes and a couple of basic maps that the parties would go into, clear out whole levels, and Gary would restock them. Mm -hmm. It was not a huge orchestrated detailed plan. It was mostly raw, very rough notes, and a considerable part of it was always just in Gary's head. He would often run without any notes whatsoever, a practice which I do to this day, running D&D &D games like here at Icon. Um, I'll sit down with no DM screen, uh, nothing but my mouth, a couple of maps and some dice, and we'll have a great time for four hours. Rock them. Because uh, I have so many scenarios up here. Same story with Gary. Um, and furthermore, is all those different branches of Greyhawk, which were essentially, imagine a tiny little house, but it's a uh, tesseract. And so it can go off into various dimensions and have connections in all these different ways. And so you have the uh, Alice in Wonderland level. You know, which is just a tack on it. It's not part of Greyhawk Castle or the campaign. Uh, much of the Greyhawk campaign was that way. As TSR started booming in the 70s, really fairly early on, he um, took on a local teenager named Rob Kuntz to be uh, part of the Kuntz family. And Terry Kuntz, uh, Theron is his real name, was actually the first employee at TSR. He was part-time in the shipping. And the first full-time employee was Tim Cask, who started Dragon Magazine, started with them in 75. Um, Greyhawk Castle was, and the Greyhawk campaign was mostly run by Rob from, I'd say, 76 on till about 82-ish, at which point even Rob lost interest in continuing because it had become business. When you're writing this stuff for your job, you start losing a little bit of the fervor that you put into it when you were a bunch of guys getting together and, and gaming two or six nights a week, as the case may be. My Philly crew back in the late 70s would play five to six nights a week. Uh, I mean, we were just manic about the thing. Nice, otherwise reasonable people with wives and lives and everything, and we just discovered this new game. I was lucky enough to acquire during the 1980s when Rob was a little financially down um, quite a few items of his which he sold me for money. Um, 
in one of the most treasured items in my archive is Rob Kunz's original notes on Grassle Greyhawk, top to bottom, comprising four legal pads of handwritten notes. Unfortunately, I don't have much in the way of maps, but I have probably the largest chunk of Greyhawk that anybody has ever owned um, from the original time to now. Uh, no, it's not for sale. <laughs> but will you publish? Um, no, and I won't publish, and I can't publish. Uh, that belongs to Rob. If Rob wants to publish, I'll be glad to give him a photocopy. But that's, like, treasured. I also, I also own one original Gygax manuscript, too. Will you encourage Rob to publish? <laughs> Not really. Uh, it would take an awful lot of work because it is a lot of it is just as raw as the notes that Gary was running off of. Uh, incomplete fragments and just ideas and this and that, little doodles, little bits. But the, it goes on and on and on, you know, for, like I say, four legal pads worth. So that's what Greyhawk really was. It was the same stuff that kept getting cleared out and then refilled. We have a 10 o'clock, gentlemen? Yeah, I was going to say we'll wrap it up by 10.05 like if you want. Okay. Yeah, I, I gave five minutes to you, so you can say that. Who asked the question? <laughs> <laughs> I'll be around this weekend the whole time. If you want to talk about Gary some more at any time, please grab me and chat. Uh, if you want me to sign anything, either on Gary's behalf or on my own, uh, please feel free. Uh, we're not sports stars. We don't charge for this stuff, okay? <laughs> Uh, no $10 or $50 autographs like Barry Bonds used to get or whatever. Um, other questions about Gary, final wrap-up, I'm afraid. Limited time. Go ahead. Well, it didn't bother Gary at all. It was publicity. Any publicity is good publicity. <laughs> really, no kidding, no fooling. Um, the more controversy we had, the more people were hearing the name D&D &D and all that basically led to the bestseller nature of, of the box sets that I wrote. Uh, that environment wouldn't have been there without that adverse publicity. Nowadays, when somebody brings it up, which happens occasionally, it's real easy to explain that if it's a game produced by a company, the biggest toy company on earth, Hasbro, you think there's going to be a problem in there? <laughs> they have vetted that thing six ways from Sunday. Anything you heard back in the old days, the critics aren't around anymore. None of the critical material is anywhere near 10 years old. Most of it's 15 to 20, 30 um, so it's real easy to debunk nowadays. It didn't hurt Gary at all, because we knew better. We had ministers who uh, were working on staff. Mark Akers, who helped design the Gangbusters game, Methodist minister. You know, I was a preacher's kid. Um, Gary was a very religious man. Many of us were very religious. There, was, there wasn't any of that. It was all a bunch of bull, and we were able to fairly easily prove it. For the final question I was asked up front, what was my favorite memory of Gary? real hard to say out of knowing the guy for 30 years. But one of my favorite incidents I'll tell you about um, was when I first started TSR and I got hired as an editor because Tom Mulvey got hired as the designer, the guy who wrote the 1981 version of D&D. &D. And I was editing and 
this new product came in, uh, Mike Carr, the general manager, had written a module called uh, Module B1, uh, Into the Depths of the Earth. But it was in a, a piecemeal thing. He had to go through and stock it. Okay, it wasn't pick it, pick it up and play. It wasn't turnkey. So Gary wanted something turnkey, and he also wanted something more campaign-oriented, so he wrote Keep on the Borderlands. So I'm sitting there editing Keep on the Borderlands, and I notice there is no church in the keep. But there is a cleric in the keep. <laughs> so I asked my boss, Harold Johnson, I said, there's no, there's no, uh, there's no chapel in the keep. What do we do? He said, you, you, you go with it. Just deal with it. Okay, accept it. And I said, but there ought to be, there has to be at least a little chapel. No, don't, Frank, leave it alone. <laughs> I said, all right, I'll tell you what. I'll send something over to the boss and see if he likes it. And he said, oh, yeah? Okay. <laughs> Gary had the reputation of not reacting well to criticism. <laughs> but I have used this example to school kids since. I did not criticize. I pointed out a flaw, and I offered a solution. And I've gotten this through conceptually to five to eight-year-olds, that if you just complain about something, nobody's going to take you seriously. But if you point it out and offer a solution, you're being proactive, you're building, you're, you're positive instead of negative. So I wrote up the chapel in the Keep on the Borderlands and sent it over by inner office mail. The design editing department was getting ready in their final plans for my farewell party. Uh, assume, assuming that what had happened before, I was told, was going to happen again. And it comes back with a note from Gary that says, yeah, looks good. Use it. <laughs> and that's when I realized that the terrible tiger... The, the Lord of TSR was not the terror that he had been made out to be, that he was sane, that he was constructive. And uh, I met him for the first time just a week after that. And then he kept his eye on me. I won the DM competition that year. And then they said, okay, here's your big challenge. Start the RPGA. And we were off and running. But that's my favorite story with Gary. I dared to add something to keep on the borderlands and made it for my first public <laughs> I'll be around. Look me up. Ask me questions. Chat. I'm a gamer. And don't call me mister. <laughs> I'm Frank. Roll for initiative.